0: Future on the Moon. Apollo to Artemis with Andy Saunders.
1: Welcome back to the Cosmic Companion. I'm James Maynard. This week we look at the Apollo and Artemis programs, discussing how these first missions to the moon set the stage for the next step in human evolution: becoming an interplanetary species. We've be talking with NASA historian Andy Saunders. His new book, Apollo Remastered, is filled with never before seen and newly remastered photographs exploring the history of humanity's first forays to our planetary companion. The engines are on. And the Apollo Four. program, Three. one of the greatest accomplishments one in human two. history, lifted oh, yeah. off. We hey! Sure I awesome. <laughs> It lifted off in 1961, when President John F. Kennedy announced that the United States was going to put an astronaut on the moon before the end of the decade, a goal many people at the time considered impossible. The program faced numerous challenges, including the tragic deaths of astronauts Gus Grissom and White, and Roger Chaffee in the Apollo 1 fire. However, NASA and its partners persevered, making significant improvements to space technology. In 1969, the Apollo 11 mission successfully landed astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon. Five additional missions to the lunar surface, as well as the successful failure of Apollo 13, showed that we could send humans to the moon and bring them back safely to Earth, fulfilling the dream of John Kennedy. The Apollo program also laid the foundation for future missions, including the first U.S. space station, Skylab, and the Apollo-Soyuz test project, the first international human mission beyond our planetary cradle. The Apollo program also had significant impacts on culture, capturing the public's imagination, inspiring a new generation of scientists, engineers, and explorers. The success of the Apollo program captured the imaginations of people around the globe. Uh, The Apollo program not only demonstrated the incredible capabilities of human technology and engineering, but also marked a major milestone for the future of human evolution. Next up, we talk with Andy Saunders. We're going to discuss his new book, Apollo Remastered and talk about how his work exploring NASA's Apollo archives in search of unseen photographs from humanity's first tentative steps to the stars. Looking deep into the universe, we see backwards in time, and the oldest light in the universe holds secrets to how everything around us will, one day, end. Meanwhile, stars, This week on The Cosmic Companion, we are happy to be joined by Andy Saunders. He is a NASA expert and historian and a whole lot more. And his new book, Apollo Remastered, gives us a new look at the Apollo missions in hundreds of previously unseen and remastered photographs. Welcome to the show, Andy.
0: Well, thank you for having me on.
1: Yeah. So first, I always love to get the origin story of authors and uh, creators. And what's what's your story? How did you become involved in a life in science?
0: Well, I've just always had an obsession with specifically the Apollo moon landing since childhood. Um, I was obs- obsessed with anything that could fly I was always making paper airplanes, little helicopters, remote-controlled planes. I had the space Lego. <clears throat> but really, rockets were kind of the ultimate flying machine to me. Um, the moon, had a—I had a fascination just with the moon. I remember looking at it through a small telescope. Again, when I was very young, just a, just a cheap toy telescope and being amazed at how that two-dimensional disk suddenly became three-dimensional, mm-hmm. became a world you could visit in a rocket. So when I learned that actually people have done that, I was born a couple of years after Apollo 17. So I don't remember the missions, but since learning that I've just always had an obsession with them. Um, and also always, always been very into photography. Mm-hmm. So here was an opportunity to basically unite those, those two passions by working on this film.
1: That's great. And so how did this all, how did this
0: particular project come about? It's It was it's born out of really frustration of two things, n- not being able to see Neil Armstrong on the moon. Mm-hmm. The, one of the most important moments in history, I would like to see Armstrong on the moon. And I've, since I was very young, conscious that we've never been able to because he held the camera. So the photographs we see are actually of, of Buzz Aldrin. So that concept has always drove me mad. But also the quality of, of the photographs that we've always seen, there's something not quite right. They never presented that well. I think we get so taken by the content, which you know is inherently incredible footage, that we miss the fact that technically they're not very good. But that doesn't make sense because they used... You can see here, they used like, the best cameras, the best lenses, the best photo lab. Film is in- incredibly high-quality film. We should be seeing them right. better, but we weren't. And I couldn't really figure out why. And the reason is everything we've seen has been based on duplicate film. So when they got back from the moon, the original film's too important, it's too delicate to be handled multiple times. So it went into this frozen vault in building eight at Johnson Space Center. And it's remained almost untouched since. And everything, you know, they handle is, is the master dupes, they're called. So these master copies, lower quality copies or copies of those or an internegative of a copy of a copy. And it goes on and on.
1: Mm-hmm. And with
0: every every generation, there's a degradation in quality. That's accelerated in the internet world because someone will make a JPEG and someone else will brighten it and save it again as a JPEG and put it on social media and it's compressed. And it just hit me, the most important moments in history, the most important photographs, the most important film, they're being seen in a progressively worse state as time goes on. And they're being seen by a progressively bigger audience. And that just drove me nuts. Things should get better, not worse.
1: Absolutely. Right, right. However
0: that original film, the film that was actually in the cameras on the moon, finally made it out of this frozen vault and available as these super high-resolution uh, scans and applying digital processing techniques to those enables us to see how we should always have seen these, perhaps almost as clearly as the astronauts themselves witnessed these amazing moments. Wow. And you, now there are
1: hundreds of photos in the book but you started, if I have this right, with something like 35,000 raw images. Where did you begin? How did you get through a project of that magnitude?
0: I basically broke it down by mission. So there's some pre Apollo in there, but beyond that, it's the crewed mission, the manned crewed missions from Apollo 17 through to Apollo, from Apollo 7 through to Apollo 17. So I basically went through it mission by mission. So already that 35,000 you know, you can narrow it down and say, right, today or this month or the next few months is Apollo 12. Mm. So learning about the mission, um, going through them, looking for anything unusual, looking for anything new, looking for any images that really just stood out that we haven't seen before, but also looking for clues in the film that, you know, a lot of them are just like a black square. They're so underexposed, but you can there are there is detail in them or there's clues as to what when you follow them in 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 order what might be coming up if it's something mm. interesting right. so i'd do a quick um edit on them and see if there's anything interesting and if there is i'd kind of park it and say okay that's tagged and go through work my way through like that and then go back to those and do a more serious edit on them pull out the detail can take like the front cover was two days because i knew it was a very historic photograph. It was an amazing right. portrait. Right. It's something we'd almost never see, that photograph. Um, so to get it right, then, that's what takes the time. As well as going through them, it's processing them and getting them absolutely right. Wow.
1: And as for people watching the video version of this episode, they can see you know a difference in the exact same image between the older version of a photograph and the newer one that you've produced. Um, what was your process like when you said, okay, I'm gonna have this, take this photograph? Um, what tools did you use? What was your, I imagine you did an awful lot of app smashing, but <laughs> <laughs> but did you, um, also, do you do anything crazy, or
0: what? The, the, what I suppose the, the the craziest thing, I suppose, is is this. I suppose it's quite an unusual thing to apply this stacking technique to the film. Uh, this is to the movie film rather than the Hasselblads. This is something that's used in astrophotography a lot.
1: Yeah, I was going to say yeah, yeah. So
0: people that know of astrophotography will know. Oh, stacking. Yes, I know what you mean. Now, the average person doesn't have a clue what stacking is. It's not that easy to explain. But I'll try. So they took this video film camera, this uh, movie footage camera, so lots of frames. Mm
1: -hmm. If you
0: can separate that out into the individual frames, stack them on top of each other and perfectly align them and then consolidate them, you basically, you can keep the signal, which is the image, but because the noise is in a random place on every frame, you can average out the noise. So the signal-to-noise ratio improves, the clarity improves, there's more detail. And you can also then push the standard kind of digital processing harder as well, so it's a double whammy you know you've got the stacking, and you yep. can then process it harder, and that what looks like a really grainy piece of cine film suddenly becomes almost like a high resolution photograph, and we can pull out just incredible detail from that
1: mm yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that most of the astronomical photographs. One sees is actually created from dozens or hundreds of these black and white, basically black and white images taken at different frequencies.
0: Yeah, long yeah, long exposures or lots of frames stacked yeah. or all yeah. kinds of of, of wizardry yeah. to pull out something that's very faint and be, to be able to see it. It's got yeah. similar principles. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so as you went through, which which image or give us an idea of like one of the images that might have had the most impact
0: on you that just made you go oh that's what was there <laughs> uh possibly the the cover i know it's obvious to say because it's the front cover <clears throat> i mean the armstrong one from a historical point of view right. it yeah. impacted you know I, I was in this office actually doing that <clears throat> that was about 10 years ago um and it was late at night everyone had gone to bed when i do a lot of my editing and I didn't know what to expect from the stacking process on this type of film. Right. And I, as I was doing it, I, you know, my heart was pounding. I was When I started to see what was coming out, it was almost like, you know, an archaeologist brushing the dust off. Uh, or if you imagine something out of focus and then you turn the focus knob and suddenly. Mm. And I was just, I couldn't believe what, what I was looking at, you know, and I knew what this meant. It was, you know, a, a really clear image of Neil Armstrong on the moon. You could see his face, could see his eyelid. So I don't think anything will ever kind of top that. Uh, But the front cover's got a bit of everything. It was a very underexposed photograph. We almost never see it. It's become this incredible atmospheric portrait. It's the only photograph of an Apollo astronaut in the full suit and bubble helmet in the lunar module. It's a historic moment because he's actually looking up through the docking window, undertaking the first ever docking in space between two crewed spacecraft. I spoke to Rusty Schweikart, who took that photograph, um, and he said, I can't tell you how hard he's concentrating in that moment. You know, this is the first time they'd ever Mm. undertaken the docking. The controls were set up to look forwards out of the windows for landing on the moon, but because they were testing it in Earth orbit, he was looking up through the docking window. So he had to translate through 90 degrees all of those movements. They were in a spacecraft that couldn't get them home. There was no heat shield because it was the lunar module that they were testing so if they didn't right. dock to the command module that had the heat shield they were in trouble they're in, big, they're in trouble so it's yeah. high pressure historic moment concentrating hard and yet it also happens to be this cinematic atmospheric portrait so that has a bit of everything in it and hence wow. you know being on the front cover
1: wow incredible incredible <laughs> so what do you hope that people get from this work I'm sorry.
0: i'd like people to you know learn more about the other missions you know there was more than just apollo 11 there was more than just neil armstrong you know apollo 7 through to apollo 17 we're approaching the 50th anniversary of apollo 17 now um and also just to feel like this is as close as they can get to making that journey themselves <clears throat> you know to step on board ride along with these space explorers and what are the greatest ever human expeditions look out the windows they looked out of see what they saw how they saw it so i've been lucky enough to have some of those select few humans that actually made this journey to critique the images to help to tell me what i need to get across in the processing to accurate accurately represent what they witnessed so i want someone to read it the there's captions on each photograph so i've done a lot of research as to who took the photograph what are we looking at any quotes from the astronauts the moment they were taking these photographs you know, to put them into even more context. And that tells the story of the whole Apollo program through the imagery. So to go on and just go and make this journey and and ride along, you know, and, and learn about you, there was more than just Neil Armstrong.
1: Absolutely. And so what do you think was your biggest challenge in
0: creating this? At time, to get through 35, <laughs> that patience Um but I, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed it all. You know, it's such important historic footage. Every now and then, every it may be, only be every several hundred that I looked at, I would come across a gem: a Neil Armstrong, a cover shot of, um, of McDivitt, um, Alan Shepard's golf ball. So he hit two balls. The second he said he went miles and miles. We've never been able to find that. I found his golf ball, uh, and worked wow. out exactly how far I found wow. his divot. And worked out exactly how far he'd hit it. So, you know, there's moments like that that just keep you going. It's quite an addictive process, actually. And by the end, I was actually starting to get quite disappointed that I know that's it. You know, I've been through all 35,000. I've been through every frame of 16mm film. There's nothing left now from Apollo. Um, But I've uncovered so many great images, I think, and and a lot of new things that... um, yeah I'm I'm really happy with the, with the end product.
1: Amazing. And finally what's your what's your next project? What's next for Andy Sanders?
0: I'm going to work uh, on effectively a prequel so the Gemini missions so mm. the missions the project that was before Apollo that paved the way. Mm-hmm. The photography from there is absolutely incredible. So I'm going to undertake the same process <clears throat> every still every every image that ended up on a piece of film I'm going to apply the stacking technique. I'm going to apply digital processing to the original film, uh, and and yeah, that will be next. So, people can go to ApolloRemastered.com and learn more about the project. They can the book's available. I'm on social media at Andy Saunders underscore one. If anyone wants to go and find out more, I'm always doing new stuff. You know, I'm posting images from Artemis. So there's there's lots for me to uh, to get on with and to share.
1: Right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Andy. It was fabulous talking with you.
0: Okay. Thank you for having me on.
1: And that was Andy Saunders, author of Apollo Remastered from Black Dog and Leventhal Publishers. Check it out anywhere you get your awesome space book. Now, hold on to your spacesuits, because we're about to embark on the next great adventure in space exploration. Oh, I'm holding on. Believe me, I'm holding on. The Artemis program, NASA's plan to bring humans back to the moon, isn't just about setting foot once again on the lunar surface. It's about setting the stage for human missions to Mars and beyond.
0: Plus, it has a really cool name.
1: It's like a game of cosmic hopscotch and the moon is just our first hop. Okay, I I promise I won't carry this analogy too far. He will, in fact, carry that analogy too far. Uh, The moon will serve as a great stepping stone to deeper space, testing new technologies and training for longer missions. Future explorers will use the moon as a testing ground for living and working in space before we take the plunge and set forth to Mars. It's just like hopscotch. Yeah. Uh, in order to journey to other worlds, we need to develop a means of easily getting to our planetary companion. Uh, with the Artemis program and the NASA plans to use the Space Launch System or SLS rocket and the Orion spacecraft to send humans back to the moon. Over time, we'll be building up a system a bit like a lunar Uber, but without the search price. <laughs> Now, uh, once we establish a permanent presence on the moon, we can start thinking about our next move, Mars. Uh let's be honest, Mars has always been the cool kid on the block, everybody knows it, everyone's going to want to live there. It's got red dust, water, and let's not forget about all those cool rock formations, okay?
0: Tell me what you know about red dust.
1: Plus, It's the ultimate survival test. Never mind New York. If we can make it on Mars, we can make it anywhere. Hopscotch. (laughs) Yeah, about that. Uh, The Artemis program is more than just a trip back to the moon. It is a stepping stone to humanity's next great adventure in space exploration. It's about testing new technology, training for longer missions, and most importantly, preparing for our next big move, Mars. So let's strap on our spacesuits and get ready to take the next giant leaps to the moon and beyond. Hey, while we're on the subject, Mars is also our next step on this show as well. Hopscotch. Next week on The Cosmic Companion, we'll talk about our future on Mars. We'll be joined by James Burke, Executive Director of the Mars Society.
0: Attention all viewers and listeners of The Cosmic Companion. Reports indicate the end of this episode is approaching. Do not panic, like you humans do so very often. Okay, maybe panic a little. But there will be an episode next week, so all is not lost yet. Signing off.
1: Now, since you made it to the end of the show, I'm just gonna go ahead and assume you enjoyed it. I mean, it's not like you just fast-forwarded to the end of the episode. Did you?
0: Mm-mm.
1: Why? Why? Why would anyone do that? So, I don't know, maybe you know someone else who might like the Cosmic Companion? I mean, share it, like it, comment on it sunday episode all over the internet why don't you it can't hurt probably clear skies